Thank you, friends. You guys want to know a little secret about one of the things that's unfortunate about preaching at Church of the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks after Christmas? There's a thin coating of glitter all over the place up here. My iPad, I don't know if you'll be able to tell, but it's all sparkly now. My iPad, it's just glitter everywhere. Do you guys know this about glitter? I don't know. We must have had glittery reeds. When I was, uh, this is like years ago, we bought this really beautiful wood table, hardwood table, but it was like you finish it yourself and you sand it and you shellac. You know what I'm talking about? This naked furniture thing. We did it. It's beautiful. It's great. And then my sweet daughter, who I adore, did a craft with glitter. And that glitter is still in that table. Like it never, that stuff, you just cannot get rid of it. So we try to um, get scheduled for a little later in January. After we vacuumed it all off. All right, you guys, uh, today we're going to begin a new series. And I think it's going to be really fun, but it's also going to feel pretty unfamiliar, I think, to many of us. Okay, we're going to study a book for about the next six weeks that is not all that well known, not that frequently traveled, but is magnificent. It's a little bit off the beaten path. At least it is to us. But what's crazy is that for the authors of the New Testament, this was well-trod ground. They love this book. In fact, there is no other book in the Old Testament that is denser in messianic content than this particular book. Given its length, it's only 14 chapters long, there's nothing that's richer for messianic stuff. Um, It's quoted in the New Testament over 70 times, and it is amazing. What's the book? Zechariah. Very good, okay? I don't think that there is any book in the Old Testament that is more important while being more neglected in the church today than Zechariah. The New Testament authors found this book to be absolutely crucial, whereas most of us can't even find it, okay? I wonder, where is Zechariah in the thing? So what we're going to do in the next six weeks, we're going to try to close the gap between the love and attention and fascination that the New Testament authors and even the early church had with Zechariah and uh, our own view, knowledge, and love of this book, okay? But don't take my word for it. Here's a few things that others have said about Zechariah. No Old Testament prophet has more prophecy concerning Christ, Israel, and the nations in so short a book. Zechariah predicts the second coming, the reign of Christ, his priesthood, his kingship, his humanity, his deity, his building of the temple of the Lord, his coming in lowliness, his bringing permanent peace, his rejection and betrayal, his return to Israel as the crucified one. This is where John picks this up in Revelation that they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn. That's Zechariah. And is being smitten by the sword of the Lord. Here's another one. The book of Zechariah exerted a profound influence over the New Testament, particularly in the realm of Messianic passages. A point long noted by New Testament scholars. Several important themes from the book figure prominently in the New Testament. One of the most important of these is the shepherd king. From Zechariah 9, the king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey emerges in Matthew and in John. And then listen to this. This is, a, this is even a little bit hard for me to take. C.H. Dodd even suggests that Zechariah provided the gospel writers with material of equal importance to the very testimonia, meaning their eyewitness accounts of Christ's ministry. See, when these guys wrote the Gospels, they depended on Zechariah as much as the three years they spent walking around with him. That is extraordinary. I'm not even sure I can go that far. Another one says, one of the great ironies concerning the book of Zechariah is its relative obscurity to the modern church contrasted with its profound significance to the early church. 
Unfortunately, students of the Bible rarely study Zechariah today. However, strong reasons exist for suggesting that the book ascended to a place of paramount importance to the writers of the New Testament and to the early church at large. That's strong language, don't you think? I think that the Bible is like a mountain, and it's a mountain that is just filled with treasure. There are these rich veins of gold. There are gems of varying size and color. And what our job is to do is to mine in, to get a pickaxe and to dig into the mountain and to discover the treasures that are hidden in it. It is filled with treasure, and you can find it. But I have noticed that a lot of us have a tendency to just stay in the familiar passages. Maybe there's one of the Gospels that you love in particular, and that's home base, that's familiar for you. Or maybe there's something that Paul wrote that you really love. Or maybe for a lot of people, it's maybe the Psalms are very familiar ground for a lot of folks. And by all means, by all means, read John, read Romans, read whatever it is that you love, be in those places. But it's probably the case that there are these vast expanses of Scripture that are filled with treasure that you've not yet discovered. And it's probably the case that Zechariah is among them. It's just not really a place that we have a tendency to spend a lot of time. You've probably not been taught a lot of it. And it's probably the case that if you did have the courage to flip to it, it was just so weird that you stopped looking at it, all right? The most important step in this whole process is simply to read it, to just get it and to you know, flip to it and then read through it. It's 14 chapters. You can hammer through it in not very long time. And if you do that, it will almost certainly be very unfamiliar to you, very strange. There's a ton of images in this book, okay? Lots and lots of things that he's going to say. Um, this is going to talk about like, oh gosh, what are the things? There's, there's walls of fire. There's um, horses, hammers, and horns. There is uh, all these just uh, construction tools and different things that you might not. There's a, there's a place where they take this woman and they shove, this evil woman, and they shove her in a basket and put a lead cover on the, on, over the basket. And then a bunch of other women with stork wings pick it up and fly it away. You're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what is this? What am I supposed to take from this? Okay, it's all this kind of stuff. But there's also a priest who wears a crown, a good shepherd who gets rejected, and a king who rides a donkey. And at the very end of the book, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. And this is a book that is just brimming with insights about Christ. I think probably my favorite chapter in the book is chapter 3. And it's a passage where there is this guilty man and he stands dressed in his own sin. It's filthy rags. And Satan is there to accuse him. And it's one of very few places in the Old Testament, in the Bible, where it seems like Satan's not lying. He's accusing this man. He's saying, you did this and you did this and you did. he's just going after him. No, no, no sense that the accusations are false, but God intervenes and basically tells Satan, hey, shut up about that. He doesn't deny that it's true, but he says, yeah, 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 this man is a burning stick, but he's mine, and I have snatched him from the fire, so back off. And they dress this man in clothing that is not his own, and everything has changed for him. For those of you here that are also sinners, like that guy, a handful of you, I know which ones of you are. <laughs> for those of you, you need to know that you have someone who speaks to the Father in your defense. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Zechariah can open that up in a way to help you see how great it is. Now there's a bunch of other stuff. There's all these images, a bunch of strange things. As you read through this book, you need it all. It will confuse you. But don't, don't let that trouble you, okay? That's just the way that we learn. When we read things, we don't understand them. We read it again. You slow down, you look at it. And if you will read through it, and then if you'll keep coming back to Holy Spirit for at least the next six weeks, and maybe even longer, Quig and Dave and I, it will be our pleasure to walk you through this book that it might begin to give up some of its treasures. Um, those first six chapters, have fun with those. They have, there's nine visions. They're each like little short stories, little vignettes, very contained units. Uh, and they're weird. That's where lots of the imagery is. All these weird things happen in there. And uh, when you go through them, don't worry about what they mean. It's fine. We'll, we'll get to what they mean down the road. Just notice what they say. Just kind of let yourself experience it. Let yourself see it. Next week, Sloop, he's somewhere. I don't know where he is. Sloop, there he is. Sloop's going to explain one of those stories. It's going to be magnificent. The next week, Quig's going to walk us through another one. And then I'll be back up here. We're going to kind of keep walking our way through it until the book starts to make sense. But what I want to do today is not so much look in Zechariah as much look around it, way around it. I want to give you the context for this book. Um, and what I mean by that is I want to give you the big picture context for the entire Old Testament, okay? We're going to look at the whole Old Testament at like the 30,000, 50,000 foot view because I don't want Zechariah to just be this weird thing that's like floating in the middle of nowhere for you. I want you to know where does it fit in the total redemptive arc. Um, because it's really, I think, pretty beautiful. All right, so walk with me over to the book of Genesis, okay? When Genesis begins, when the Bible opens, there's four great events and four great people, all right? It's creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, okay? So God makes the world, and then it breaks. And as soon as it breaks, he's like, all right, I'm gonna clean this up. I'm gonna send a rescuer. It's gonna be okay. And then he floods the world, saving a remnant, but the remnant screws it all up too. And so then he has to scatter the people, confuse the languages, and we're all through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay? And then the people show up, Abraham, okay? God picks this one guy and he says, you, I will bless you, you will bless the nations. And what he means by that is it's from you that the rescuer is going to come. This is the line. This is where he's coming from. And then he has a kid who has a kid who has a kid who has 12 kids. Joseph's the favorite. And he makes them into a nation and he gives them a land. And they go into this land, but pretty quickly they run out of food and there's a famine. And so they flee from their land into another land, Egypt. And Egypt's great until it isn't. And they end up getting stuck there. And they're actually enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And then God rescues them. He delivers them out in this fantastic act and brings them in to a new land, back into their land. Now, that rescue is the primary template for the rescue that he promised back in Genesis 3. And so they go, and it's only like a, you know, a couple of weeks to walk to get to their land, but can you guess what happens? They screw it up. And what should have taken them just a few weeks ends up taking them 40 years because God makes them march around in the wilderness literally until all the old people are dead so that their children can come into the land. And that is, what book is that? Do you know where that is? That's Numbers. So we're in Genesis. We're in Exodus. Numbers is the wandering. And now they're finally done wandering. They got to take the land. But what do they have to do in order to really possess the land, you guys? Do you know? They got to fight. They got to go conquer the land. And where, where does that happen? 
Joshua. In Joshua, they conquer the land. And then as they conquer the land, everything's great. And they win a great victory. Except it's only a partial victory. And they don't really drive out all the nations. So the nations around them become a snare to them. And this is the book of Judges now. And Judges, I would say for my money, is the most embarrassing book in the Bible. They are such a train wreck over and over and over again. There's this pattern and it repeats and it repeats and it repeats where they cry out to God and he rescues them and then they become complacent. And in their complacency, they sin and become rebellious. And in their rebellion, they get oppressed and then they cry out to God for help. Repeat, repeat, repeat. It is just an absolutely embarrassing number of times that the rescuer rescues and the rebels rebel. Just over and over and over and over and over and over again. Finally, and the, the, the refrain in those times is, in those days Israel had no king. And everyone did as he saw fit. Finally, the kingdom really begins. And there a monarchy is started. And there's a monarchy. And it lasts for about three generations as an intact whole. There are three kings over unified Israel. Do you remember their names? Who are they? Saul, David, and Solomon. Now of them, those first two, of the first two, David is way better than Saul. Saul's kind of bad. He's not great. But David is magnificent until he isn't, right? He becomes the great template for the rescuer. Whereas the exodus that we read about is the, pick, is the pattern of the rescue, David is the pattern of the rescuer, right? He is a hugely important figure in the Old Testament. And God says to him that the rescuer, and by now we can start changing his name from rescuer to Messiah. That's kind of the way the language shifts. This Messiah He's going to come from your line. He will be a son of or a grandson of or a great, 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 great grandson of David. And it is enormously important. David, by the way, if you're looking at your trying where is this all happening in real time? It's about 1,000 B.C. So you can date everything around David. There's stuff pre-David, post-David, 1,000 B.C. is your anchor point, okay? David is the guy from whom he's coming. So David is going to have a son, and his son's name is what again? Solomon, okay? So we're reading about Saul and David back in First and Second Samuel. We move into First Kings, and now we're really in the life of Solomon. Solomon is complicated. In many ways, he does great things, and, he's, and the kingdom grows under his rule, but he also marries like a thousand women, and that kind of goes sideways for him. Uh, and his heart gets drawn away. And so he's, he's a hard guy to pin down. Lots of really great goodness, and he wrote a lot of Bible, actually. But man, he just fails in some really spectacular ways as well. Okay, so after Solomon, oh, and by the way, Solomon is the son of David. And if you think about the promises made to David that the Messiah would come from his line, David is the pattern of this Messiah, but then so is Solomon because Solomon is literally the son of David. And so there are promises made to the Messiah through Solomon. Solomon is now that we have, we're building this type and we're building this frame and this pattern of what God will do when he finally rescues and then right after Solomon bam the kingdom splits and this is such a drag okay so we've had we only had three guys over a unified kingdom the kingdom splits and kind of like in the United States we had a north and a south in our civil war they split north and south the north keeps the name they continue to be called Israel the south gets a new name they're called Judah but Judah keeps the promise meaning the Messiah, the rescuer, he's going to come from them. And then what happens for several hundred years is these two nations, Israel and Judah, 
live in a genuinely unhappy alliance between one another, and they're wicked through and through. Literally, every single king of Israel is evil. They're all just rebellious, wretched people. And almost every king of Judah is evil. There's a couple good guys. Asa's pretty good. Hezekiah, he keeps it together. But for the most part, it's like, you know, 18 out of 20 are just bad, 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 bad. And so this whole period after Solomon, and then I'll show you where we end, this, for about three or 400 years, it's really, really bad. And it is here in this moment that God sends the prophets. Right here is where the prophets show up. Now we're in the book. By the way, what book are we in now? If we're dealing with all the stuff, Solomon, post-Solomon. Do you know where these would be? Basically it's 1 Kings and 2 Kings is where you're going to get that. And this is where the prophets fit in. Okay, so what's going on as we're here? God keeps telling the people, both of Israel and of Judah, the kind of both nations and a couple of the surrounding nations actually. He's like, you guys, you've got to stop. You've got to, you've got to repent. You are on a path that's going to lead to nowhere. You must stop. You must repent. God is merciful, but you're squandering, you're wasting his kindness. Okay. In fact, let me, I'm going to step out of the timeline for a second because this is so important. There is, there's an interval, you guys, between sin and judgment. Have you ever noticed this? It's not like as soon as you do something stupid, like rocks fall out of the sky and crash into your head. That's not the way the world works. We do stupid things and God allows this intervening time, this period of mercy. And what's supposed to happen in that window is that's when we come to our senses. That's when we apologize. That's when we're like, ah, that's so dumb, right? That's where we turn and we begin to make changes. But sometimes what happens and what happened for Israel and for Judah is they're like, hey, did you see that? We got away with it. Let's do it again. And let's do it again. And let's do it again. Because God is either a pushover or he's not watching or I'm in some special dispensation that I don't like. And so this window that is meant for mercy and for grace, they completely squander it. And the judgment comes. Now those prophets, they saw it coming. They knew that it was coming. And they knew that God would be merciful even in judgment because he always is. But they're like, it would be a lot better if we averted this. And so they cry out and the people ignore. And then finally, it happens. In 722 BC, Assyria comes in and just obliterates the north. It's a bloodbath. They just get wrecked, ruined, scattered, and all is lost for them. Only the northern half, though. The southern half, Judah, they're, they're watching, and they're like, they could think, oh, gulp. Like, he means it. We better clean up our act. But they didn't. And so, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and just wreck Judah. And this is really where the storyline comes to an end. And by the way, I have not forgotten that we're talking about Zechariah. We're so, so close, okay? So here's what's happened so far. Genesis, we got four, four and four, right? Creation, fall, flood, Babylon, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They get this land, they lose the land, they go out and they get stuck in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. They get brought out of Egypt and then they screw that up. They wander around for 40 years in the wilderness and that's just a drag. And they finally take the land and they fight and they win, but they don't fight that hard and they don't win that much. And so the nations come in around them. And that's just really bad. Then the kingdom really begins with the monarchy. With a pretty mixed bag, but at least David's there. And David is the template of what Messiah will be. That this rescue will happen. And the whole way, the whole way, the people of God have been rebelling. 
and God has been forgiving. The people of God have been falling into distress and God has been rescuing. And these patterns, throughout this whole thing, the pattern is being set. And then finally we're in this window where it's just so bad and the prophets are calling them into repentance and they just don't repent until the judgment finally falls. Okay, you with me? We're so close to Zechariah. Here's what I want you to know. This moment here of when the prophets come and then really the moment where Babylon comes in and just ruins everything, we call this sometimes the exile. Sometimes we'll call it the Babylonian captivity. This event that took place in 586 is absolutely monumental and you will not be able to understand any of the prophets if you don't know what's going on. It, it is the Holocaust, okay? It is the major event and in fact it's so significant that we date all of the prophets in reference to this moment. We basically put the prophets into three categories. Some of the prophets are pre-exilic, meaning they wrote before the exile. Some of the prophets are exilic, they write in the midst of the exile and then some are post-exilic, they write after the exile. Most of them are pre. Most of them are like, it's coming, it's coming, watch out, the judgment is coming. That's where you're going to find Isaiah, that's where you find Ezekiel. Most of the words, most of the famous things are here in the, in the lead up to it. There's a couple guys, though, that write in the middle of the exile. They're like, oh, man, well, here it is. This is horrible, right? Jeremiah is one of our exilic prophets. He wrote two books. He wrote his, the book that bears his name, Jeremiah, but he also wrote Lamentations, which is a lament, an expression of deep sorrow, right? And then a couple of guys are post-exile. They're after it's all over. That's where Zechariah lives, okay? Zechariah is one of the guys after, he's at the very end of the story when everything's a mess where the looming question is like, is it over? Do we stretch it too far? Are we done here? Meaning, not like, are we done with the judgment, but are we done with the relationship? Like, are we, we just, should we just go home now? What, what's up, okay? Now, if you go back to the, ex, in the midst of the exile, Jeremiah is actually really helpful to us because Jeremiah wrote this book. It's called Lamentations, and it's, it really captures the heart of where the people, where the godly people were at, right? These are all people of God, but they're not very godly people a lot of the time. But for those that were, here's, I want you to hear the very end of Lamentations. This is how that book ends, and it's, it's just crucial for what we want to see what's about to happen in Zechariah. So the very end of Lamentations 5, it says, joy is gone from our hearts, and our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it, because Babylon destroyed it. Yet you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. And now hear this. This is it. This is it. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Here's the line. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That right there is the baton that the exile guys pass to the post-exile guys. That's the question, right? Zechariah, figure this out. Has he 
rejected us forever. Is it over? And in particular, we need to know, is the Messiah still coming? Or did we ruin that too? That is what Zechariah is all about. Do you see now why Zechariah is such a messianically dense book? At this point in redemptive history, this is the burning question. Are we done? Is it over? Are we past redeeming? Or will you still do what you said you would do back before we exposed what we really are like? Are you moving on? Or will the Messiah still come? You guys, Zechariah is a book filled with messianic hope. And I want you to know it. I want you to own it. Not only because the New Testament loved it and knew it. And not only because it's just helpful to know your own history. But because my assumption is that you have probably blown it too. Amen? And what you need to know is that it is not over. It's not too late. It's not too late to cooperate with him. It's not too late to be restored. The Messiah did come. And he is coming again. And he is for you. It is literally the most important thing in the world that you would come to cooperate with him. To come under his gracious reign. To live in the sea of his grace. There is actually nothing more important than that. There is no one who has ever lived who is wiser or kinder or holier than Jesus. No one is more patient. No one is more ferocious. No one is better than him in any way. And we're studying Zechariah because the book is about Jesus. Because he is so magnificent. And every minute that you spend seeking to know him, to understand him, to submit your life to him, will be richly rewarded. So, may I kindly but urgently implore you to put down whatever worthless bauble has captured your attention and go hard after this with us. I implore you, the Bible is filled with treasure and you can find it. And there is nothing that we would delight more than to be your guide into this part of the mountain. Quig and Sloop and myself, we're going to walk through this thing. It will be weird. I promise you. But weird stuff is fun. I love weird stuff. Because the weird stuff is stuff we don't already know. Okay? So when you read it, it's going to be like, ah, that's confusing. And I don't know what that is. All right? Your assignment is this. On the way out, somebody's going to hand you a book that looks like this. Okay? This has all the, this is the text of Zechariah. And then I put at the bottom of it all the places that the New Testament quotes it because I want you to see like man the New Testament is in this thing all over the place now I will admit to you the cover looks like this because I made it and I have no artfulness at all I don't know what what do you want okay draw a picture of what you think Zechariah looks like and then shut up about it all right but it's good stuff in here it's gold in the center of it I've got the Bible projects uh, poster of Zechariah that would be really useful for you to reference that and say, oh, I see where we're at in the organization of it. Or you could do this. This would be so helpful to you. Just go, go, go to YouTube and search Bible Project Zechariah. And you can watch their eight-minute video, which would be so helpful. These guys are so good at what they do. Okay, Grab it on the way out. Um, and then do this. Check this out. Read it. 
Okay, just read it. Okay, it's 14 chapters. You can hammer that out this week. When you do, some of it will make sense. A lot of it won't. All right? No worries. Just start laying it down. And don't worry about understanding it. Just observe it, okay? When you read things, I know that it's, when you read things that you don't understand, that can be disincentivizing. But come on. Don't be such a sissy, all right? Just read it, all right? There's so much good stuff in here. As you do, pay attention. Let the images just be images for their own sake. We'll, f we'll figure out what they mean as we go through. Just notice what it says. Um, let's see. You might notice, but here's what'll happen. You'll notice some things that you'll be like, oh, I recognize that. You'll see some stuff that you're like, hey, that reminds me of Palm Sunday. I've heard that thing before. That's good, okay? Note that. You'll see this kingly priest or this priestly king. That might be helpful. You might notice there's this deal about like 30 pieces of silver, and maybe that'll ring a bell. Although you'd be like, I have no idea why they think that was about Judas, but okay, right? Just notice it. Just capture it. And as you go through it, pay attention. You can, you can write in this, scribble in whatever you want, and then come back, and we'll do it again, and then we'll do it again, and then we'll do it again. And we could become, you guys, we could become the one church in the United States of America that is fluent in Zechariah. And wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be great? There's good stuff in there, so we want to do it. Now, when you walked in this morning, you probably weren't thinking, I wonder what's going on in Zechariah, okay? You came in with a million burdens. There's things going on in your life and relationships and work and, oh, good Lord. Whatever's going on in your mind and heart, we want to help you, right? I think Zechariah, I think if we understand the gospel here, that is broadly helpful. We want to make that land. But it might be that right now what you most need is everybody to be quiet for like two minutes so that you can just speak to the Lord. And we'd love to create a space for that. What we'll do is these curved rails are for you to come forward and just be like, whatever's going on, maybe something that I said in Zechariah is actually like clicking for you. And you want to have a chance to process that with the Lord. Game on. It may be that whatever's going on in your mind doesn't have anything to do with this, or at least it's not obvious how it does. And you need somebody to pray with. At the straight rails, we'll have friends that will pray with you so that you don't have to be alone in that. However you want to do it, it is our pleasure to take you deeper and deeper into the mountain because it's filled with treasure because you can find it. And whatever we can do in these next moments and over these next weeks to serve you, it would be our pleasure to do. So let me pray for you. And then we will go to the table and meet the Lord there. Lord, we love you. You are goodness itself. You're kind and rich and generous. And you wrote a really strange book that is puzzling to us. Would you unwrap the puzzle? Would you give us the pleasure of discovering what you meant, what these images mean, that you'd kind of sneak past our logicalness and grab our hearts and show us what you want us to know about the God that is merciful and gracious. We affirm that you are slow to anger. You're abounding in love and faithfulness. Would you call us out of the places we have hidden that we might drink of your love. We love you.